All right, guys, grab a seat. All right. Welcome, everyone. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors. Um, And I'm excited to preach this morning. Uh, We're in a series that has been going on for a while um, out of the book of Acts. So today we're going to look at uh, chapter 13. We're just going to do it in one chapter at a time. But today is uh, chapter 13, a very exciting chapter. I love it. I don't usually title my messages, but <clears throat> I thought that um, this would be a good title for, for this message. The beautiful, messy, and disruptive work of the Holy Spirit through the church. Or it could be something shorter, like snapshots of real Christianity. Or we could go even shorter and just call it expectations. And I think this is important for us just to kind of set the stage a little bit. Because uh, if you've been around the church, I know some are new, but if you've been around the church for any length of time, not just this church, but the church in in general, you hear talk of uh, things like revival or awakening or renewal or just, you know, Christians... Uh, going after God and asking God to to do something fresh, a fresh outpouring. It depends on your theological stream. They'll use different words. Uh, But, you know, I think it's something that we all desire. We want to see expansion. We want to see growth. We want to see God move uh, powerfully in our midst, right? But I think sometimes we have uh, strange expectations of what that is going to look like. You know, we think that if God were to move upon Renaissance Church and upon the city of Providence and upon, you know, our nation even, that it would just bring this incredible unity to everybody and, 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 and just things would be peaceful and our country would be wonderful and the city of Providence would just become this harmonious hub of, you know, beauty and goodness. But how many know that those are not accurate expectations. And we have stories from Scripture, and but we also have stories throughout history, even in New England, right? The first and second great awakenings happened in New England. And you always see this mixture of beauty and just grace at work, but then mixed with uh, disruption and persecution And just crazy things that happen. Messiness. In fact, when God is really doing something genuine, who comes out to play? The enemy. Satan. Maybe using people even. But he comes. Satan's not going to bother with some dead church or some dead movement, right? Satan's going to come where the the real action is. He's going to come and he's going to, He's going to come with counterfeit uh, teachers. He's going to come with false teachers. He's going to come with uh, individuals that are self-proclaimed prophets that they kind of stir things up and create confusion and division. 
Listen, this has always been the case. If you just do a casual reading of the New Testament, you'll see that so much of what the uh, early church fathers, or the disciples, if you want to call them that, um, taught was they were warning. They were giving these exhortations about false teachers that would come in. They were always dealing with uh, conflicts and controversy uh, amongst the, the churches. This is what happens when God begins to move. It's beautiful, but it is messy. Can I get an amen from at least Rose? Okay. <clears throat> All right. All right. There's an amen. Uh, so, yeah, we're, I'm just going to walk you through this chapter and um, make some comments here and there. There's a lot packed into this. I'm excited to, <laughs> to talk about this. All right, so verse 1 of chapter 13 in the book of Acts says this. Well, get, let me give you a little context. This, at this point in, in, the, in the game, I mean, for those that are brand new to Christianity, uh, we know that Jesus died, was crucified, resurrected, talked to uh, many of his disciples over a short period of time. And then the church in Acts chapter 2 actually was born. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. These timid, cowardly, confused, discouraged disciples were awakened incredibly and just went everywhere and preached Christ. They preached that Jesus was resurrected. And the church spread, right? On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were awakened through what seems like a very average sermon that Peter, the Apostle Peter, preached. And so, you know, chapter 2, chapter 3, there's just miracles happening. The church is growing. It went from 3,000 to 5,000. It was just expanding around the area. But, like I said, it gets messy. It gets messy. Uh, then you, you come into, I forgot what chapter. I think Chris preached on it. Didn't you preach on Stephen? Uh, what chapter is that? Eight? Seven, eight, something like that. But once you hit that point, you see this persecution begin to start. And Stephen, one of the strong men of the early church who was filled with the Holy Spirit and was doing signs and wonders and doing incredible things, he was stoned, uh, stoned to death. And even that was kind of miraculous because his face shined like the face of an angel and he forgave the people even as he's being stoned and blood was flowing. And, but, it, you know, it wasn't like a happy ending. You know? I mean, it was in the sense that he, he fell into the arms of Christ because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? Uh, but he died. And then you see this uh, hot persecution uh, Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, wrote most of the New Testament, was just on this mission to uh, crush and just, you know, shut down the, the you know, the, the movement of the, the early church. And he was dragging people out of their homes and bringing them into prison, and people were dying. So that you, you have to realize this. Sometimes we read uh, the New Testament, read the the book of Acts, and yeah, we're just reading it from our, you know, our comfortable American lifestyles of, you know, just kind of peaceful, and we go to work, and we go to the park, and 
enjoy the foliage. And, you know, you kind of have to go there a little bit and realize that the context was one of extreme danger. Even if you go back into uh, just the previous chapter, chapter 12, um, Herod, this crazy king, was violent. And in fact, it says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John. I mean, this was like, remember Peter, James, and John? Like, this, is, this is like a pillar of the early church, killed. And the next thing, they go after Peter. Uh, Peter's thrown into prison, and uh, John preached on this uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, miraculous uh, escape from prison. Uh, so he wasn't killed, thankfully. Uh, but Herod was on this mission. And I'll give you a little context here, too. Just the few paragraphs before chapter 13, at the end of 12, you see uh, Herod. It kind of shows what this guy's all about. But he, he uh, I won't get into the whole context of it, but he basically is in a, in a gathering. He's a politician. And the people are kind of like worshiping him. And they're like, oh, my gosh. He gives this speech and people are crying out and saying, it's the voice of a God. And verse 23 of chapter 12 says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Have a great day, guys. Like I said, messy, right? Messy. But this guy was evil. So I'm just, my point though is that the context of this time, chapter 13, is one of danger. Just keep that in mind. So, verse 1, chapter 13, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. When you ever see that word prophet, it just means somebody who, prophets are different than teachers. Teachers tend to expound and you know, kind of layer by layer, uh, just kind of go deep into the scriptures. Prophets usually uh, deal with trouble spots. They, they're truth tellers. They speak from the mouth of God and they, they, they just speak to the condition of things and call the church or call God's people to action. So it's a little different, though there's some overlap, of course. But there's this little circle of prophets and teachers And uh, he gives the names, kind of a motley crew. Barnabas, who seems like just a nice guy. Uh, Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene. Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod. You know, the guy we just talked about, who was violent. This is like the lifelong friend of Adolf Hitler, was like part of, he was a prophet in the early church. Uh, that's kind of what we're dealing with. This is a motley crew. And of course, uh, Saul, who would later become Apostle Paul, who, of course, wrote most of uh, the New Testament, or most of the letters, I should say. So I love this. It's kind of a motley crew. You know, sometimes we feel, side note here, that if God is going to use somebody, he's going to choose the kind of the cream of the crop, right? He's going to choose the, the nice person, the person that hasn't sinned much since youth. You know, they're just like nice people and they're super maybe educated or whatever. They just have a great track record of being 
like nice and normal and good citizens? How many know that God, for some reason, doesn't seem to choose some? I mean, he chose Saul. I mean, Saul was having people murdered, having Christians murdered. God totally blows him away, you know, strikes him with blindness, and he, you know, falls to his face, sees a light from heaven, and God turns his heart around and makes him the greatest, probably the greatest Christian of all time. And if you just, I mean, it's not just in the New Testament, but God seems to have a little bit of a habit of taking some of the worst characters and turning them around and raising them up, changing their lives, and making them into his servants. I'm so tempted to just give you like 40 examples, but I'm going to, you can just study and think about the life of Abraham, the liar, and Moses, who killed somebody, and David, who committed adultery, and had somebody killed, and just all the broken, sinful people that God has. Doesn't that give you encouragement? Some of you, you're so good. You've been so good since you've been like two years old and three years old. But for the rest of us, wretched sinners, we're like, oh, phew. Like, there's hope for me. You know, God can use uh, really wretched people. Uh, I'm excited about that, okay? All right, let's get into it. So this little motley crew of prophets and teachers, and it says this in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. So they're, just picture the scene, just, you know, the five of them. Maybe there's some others there too. They're just like, they're, they're worshiping. I don't think there was instruments, but they're just like exalting God. Lord, you are powerful. You are the all, you know, the all powerful creator of the universe. Thank you for uh, the work you've done. And they're, they're just like worshiping the Lord and fasting, probably, you know, taking some days to uh, put aside food. And, you know, this has been a habit of, uh, followers of Christ for, uh, obviously for 2,000 years, and even before that, of course, in the Old Testament. But a lot of times we fast to be more sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Anyways, but that's what they're doing. They're worshiping the Lord. They're doing some fasting. And in the midst of this time that they're spending with with God, uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. Clearly speaks to them. And it seems like it's kind of to all of them. They, they get this sense. It's not like a voice came from heaven. I mean, God can certainly do that. But I think sometimes when there's deep unity and worship and prayer and fasting, and if you've been in these settings before and there's three or four people praying in unity, there is a sense you are so surrendered, so yielded to God that you kind of know that the Spirit of God is saying something. There are themes that will come through. And that's, that's what's happening here. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And you know, I, I read it like this, that they already knew, it was already in their heart, what God wanted them to do. But maybe they were kind of waiting for the right time to, to step into it. But here it is, like God is saying, now is the time to do the work that I have called you to do. So they, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. I love this because 
it is so easy for us as Christians to just, I don't know, to just be religious. You know, to come together, to sing songs, to, uh, you know, to, to, to even to fast and, and do these different practices. But that's, that's not just what they're doing. It's not just about they're worshiping and, and singing and, and praying, but they're listening to God and God is giving them assignments. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is the essence of true Christianity. Being a true follower of Jesus isn't just about a lifestyle of prayer, a lifestyle of worship, you know, just, you know, getting together, fasting. It is at the heart saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? It's surrender. It's, Lord, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? What do you want to change about my life? And you got to realize this is a costly thing. They're in Antioch, which was a bit north of Jerusalem, quite a bit north. And it was kind of the hub for a lot of believers. And it was probably a pretty nice place to be because there were so many believers there. It was kind of a kind of a mega church, though they probably met in small spaces, but there was just a lot of believers there and they shared meals together and it was probably wonderful. And God, in the midst of this comfort and ease that they were probably enjoying in Antioch, says, go into dangerous places. And again, people were dying. People, I mean, just forget about Christianity for a minute. Just to go on the road was dangerous. Just to be on the road, just to be sailing across the seas. I mean, Paul was uh, three times shipwrecked out on the seas. Just to travel at that, at this time in this region was dangerous. But on top of it, there was this danger of persecution. And yet, they said, here I am, Lord. Send me. Here we are. Send us, God. This is true Christianity. So, they did it. They didn't just talk about it. They did it. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus, which is a pretty good-sized island, And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, or John Mark, to assist them. So it's Barnabas, Saul, Paul, um, and John Mark. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, now you kind of get this idea that they went through the whole island and went to all the synagogues, were preaching the gospel boldly, and you kind of get the sense that they weren't having a lot of success, right? You know, they step out, they do this thing, the prayer and the fasting, we're going to go, we're going to go change the world. You know, and they go out there and they just go through and nothing seems to be happening until they get to this story here. Now, this is a crazy story. (laughs) When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, named Bar-Jesus. He was with the pro-council, which is just the governor, pretty sure the governor of Cyprus, the, you know, kind of the 
appoint person who's overseeing, like the governor of Rhode Island. And this guy's name is Sergio, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And check this out. He summoned, he must have heard, caught wind, that Saul and Barnabas and this John Mark were going around the whole island preaching this message. And so the governor was curious, interested. I mean, maybe God put it on his heart to uh, summon, summon these guys to hear more about the message. So that's what happened. Um, they summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So it seems like a good thing. The governor of the island wants to hear the message that, that Saul and Barnabas and this uh, young minister, John Mark, are bringing. And it, this is a great time. You know, they're they're going to share the gospel and uh, this governor is going to be awakened and then he's going to be a, a man of influence, right? And influence the rest of the islands. It seems like good things are happening. But here's where the messy comes in. But verse 8 Elamas, this is Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Do you see what's happening here? So the governor is interested. He wants to hear this good news. You know, Saul's like sharing things with him and and Barnabas is like bringing that encouragement, and this guy's really opening up his heart. And then this dude, Elimas, is swaying the governor away. Like these guys don't know what they're talking about. They're full of baloney. Don't listen to them. I, who knows what, what exactly how that looked. But God was at work reconciling the governor, to himself. And this guy, Elamas, was basically getting in the way, standing in the way of God. How many know that's a, that's a dangerous thing to do? You don't want to be in a place where you're hindering the work of God or persuading somebody. I mean, I think about the stuff I've read in recent years, how many writers there are out there who are just trying to undermine Christianity. Or like, really more so, they're creating new forms of Christianity, false forms of Christianity, and then just with all of their intellectual force, trying to persuade people against orthodoxy and serious faith. God help them. I mean, Jesus put it this way, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea than to make one of these little ones stumble. I mean, was he talking about children? Yeah, probably. But I think he was talking about Christians, new, new believers, or somebody who's just coming to the faith. When somebody comes and they, they try to steer a person away from reconciling with God, it's just that's a scary place to be. And let's see what happens here to Elamas. Verse 9, 
Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elamas and said, do you guys know what it said? And so, oh, it's up there maybe. He said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> nope, not that. He said, you son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, remember, the governor's like there. Whoa. Okay. This is, this is getting heavy. You know, the governor just watching this whole thing. And then Saul says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon Mr. Bar-Jesus. And he went about just kind of groping, seeking people to lead him by the hand. This arrogant man who was like attacking and opposing these servants of God, these messengers of God, bringing good news to the governor is now humbled and kind of groping in the darkness. And listen, we don't really hear anything more about this guy. I, I don't know what happened to him if he, you know, Ended up getting worse or, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't say he was blind forever, but he was struck with blindness for a time. But verse 12 says, then, I love this, then the governor believed. It turned from intellectual debate. Remember, it says that uh, the governor was a man of intelligence. And so probably Saul also was incredibly, probably the greatest mind in Christian history. Um, and so there was some real intellectual exchange that was probably happening between Saul and the governor. But now a demonstration of power happened. Something awakened in the governor to realize this isn't just an idea. This isn't just a different religion. This isn't just a, a persuasion this is real. And the governor believes when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And the same thing is said actually of Jesus in many places, that people were absolutely astonished by the teaching of Jesus because it wasn't just a teaching. It wasn't just information. There was power that came along with it. There was power. His words penetrated hearts. Uh, Jesus often did incredible miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, and then he would speak truth. And so it was different. It wasn't like the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, the religious teachers at the time, it was all blah, 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 blah. Just talk, talk, talk. But Jesus came with demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so does Saul and Barnabas in this story. Now let's go down to uh, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now this is getting quite far from, uh, from Jerusalem. 
okay? So, you know, the hub was Jerusalem. Then it kind of evolved into after the persecution happened, it kind of got scattered. There was a real strong hub in Antioch, which was north. Um, Cyprus, this island that this story just happened on, was, you know, kind of out, pretty far out. And, and But then Perga was like even further. Now you're getting like heading toward Rome at this point. You're far away. Just keep that in mind. So John, Mark, this young minister, left them, left Saul and Barnabas and returned to Jerusalem. And we, we're not really sure about that, but it kind of comes up later that, you know, Barnabas and Saul had very different feelings about this and actually divided and were, had, you know, some conflict over it. But for whatever reason, we're not really sure. Maybe it was just too much. Like, this is crazy. This is too dangerous. This is, you know, maybe, maybe when, when Saul, like, struck this guy with blindness, John Mark was like, I don't know, like a softy. Like, I don't know. This seems a little, that seems a little harsh. I, I don't know if I, you know, for whatever reason, he had a bit of a crisis of faith, and he went back home. But they, Saul and Barnabas, went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and this is even further. So this is like Perga, but then it's like way north. This is not the Antioch that I was talking about before. This is a different place, way up. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So picture the scene. They're at a synagogue far away. I mean, maybe they heard about Jesus and some of the things that have happened and the spread of Christianity. But again, this is far away. Probably they weren't too aware of everything that happened. So Paul uh, being a Jew himself, he knew how to like, uh, you know, be in, act like a Jew, I guess, and and be in the synagogue, and and so they they kind of recognize these these visitors from out of town, and and they say, hey, do you guys want to? Uh, do you have a word of encouragement? Do you want to say hi to the congregation? Do you want to say something th- this morning? And what would we do? I don't know. I'd be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. We're just going to kind of take it in. And, you know, maybe afterward we'll have some little conversations with people. Um, maybe, you know, maybe we can share with them a little bit. If, you know, if it comes up naturally. Uh, that, that's, not how they, that's not how they rolled. Um, Paul was like, yeah. Yeah, I got something to say in so many words. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. And I'm not going to give you all of this, but he just speaks to them. Men of Israel. You who fear God and you who fear God, listen. And then he goes into this. He talks about uh, Egypt. He talks about the 40 years in the wilderness. He talks about Canaan. And they're all like, you know, this synagogue of Jewish people are just like, yeah, this is good. This guy's good. This guy's good, good order. Um, he talks about Samuel the prophet. He talks about when uh, the people of Israel asked for a king, and Saul was given. He talks about King David and how King David was a man after God's own heart. And he talks about all of this, and, and you kind of picture them, them all, like, tracking with it. Like, wow, this is good. This is good. I love, who are these guys? Like, we should, maybe God, these guys are, maybe they can teach next week or whatever. But then he just, it all comes to a, like, screeching halt. I think of, like, a, 
the old-fashioned records when the records scratch. Verse 23, he says this. Of this man's offspring, speaking of David, in other words, uh, right, Jesus was an offspring of David. He was in the lineage. He says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. You got to realize that, like for us, we're just reading it, no big deal, just keep reading. This was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That, what? No. Because they were still waiting for the Messiah, right? But Paul is saying here, he's come. God has sent the Savior of the world to come and do what he has promised to do. And he talks a little bit about John the Baptist, and then he really gets into it. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us, he's talking about himself and a handful of disciples, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem, the Jews and their rulers, because they did not recognize the coming of Jesus, right? We know that from John chapter one. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. I mean, they, they hated him. They were jealous of him. The Jewish rulers and leaders of that time, the majority of them, at least, some of them followed Christ, but the majority of them set their hearts against the savior of the world and eventually had him killed, right? And he tells the story. For those of us who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, and he has to throw in this little gem, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers, the Jewish fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. And then he goes into uh, some other portions of the Old Testament that would resonate with them. But just skip up to verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, I know that's a mouthful, and this is a whole sermon that we could break down and meditate, but he's basically preaching the gospel to them. These are people who believed in the Old Testament. They believed in the laws of Moses. But how many know the law, the law of Moses did not set people free, right? It, it actually was a, a tutor that would show us that, wow, we need a Savior, right? The Old Testament laws were to basically show us that, wow, we can't do this. 
We're not good enough. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior. We need someone who's going to come and die for us. They knew that. They were waiting. And Paul is getting up and saying, he's come. The Savior has arrived. He came to Jerusalem. His people didn't recognize him. They killed him. But then he was raised from the dead. And now we can be forgiven. This is good news to these people in this faraway land. These Jewish followers of Jehovah. Well, it goes well here for a while. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That's pretty awesome. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Man, one short message of Paul and these Jews are like, whoa, this is, they sensed something real about this and were drawn into it. God was awakening hearts. And the next Sabbath, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Isn't that crazy? I mean, this wasn't just the synagogue, but Paul's message, this one sermon, was so jarring, so disturbing, so, I mean, th- this was huge. He, they were, he was saying, the Messiah has arrived, and he's been resurrected from the dead, and now we can have freedom from sin. I mean, people were like, if this is true, this is crazy. This is the best news we've ever heard. And so not just the whole synagogue, but like the whole city gathers together. I don't know what that looked like, if they could fit in the synagogue or if they were outside on the lawn. But verse 45, not everyone was super excited about Paul and Barnabas with their glorious message of good news. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. There's the messy again. The whole city's coming out. Now we're talking about not just Jewish people, we're talking about Gentiles coming in, just hearing about this. Well, well, if the Messiah did come, you know, that could maybe include us. Like maybe we're gonna be a part of this. God is doing something new in this generation. And so there was a swelling crowd, but then the Jews... The Jewish leaders were not so happy about it. I mean, isn't it strange when you read the Gospels, you think, man, why would the Jewish leaders be so against Jesus? He was doing so many good things. He was healing people. People's lives were being changed. He was just doing so much good. And it says Jesus went about doing good village to village, But the Jews hated him. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus. And that's what's happening here too. They get jealous. And they started to revile, come against the the message that Paul was giving. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, 
saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. This is, again, really strong. But since you, it's another rebuke, since you thrust it aside, like the good news is coming to you that the Savior has come, but because you are rejecting it, thrusting it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, Again, we read this, it doesn't even mean anything, but this was huge right here. Paul says, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Whoa. There's only two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. Like Gentiles are everyone who's not Jew. So Paul's saying, you know, we're the messengers of the Most High God, and... We're turning aside from you because you're rejecting it. And we are going to bring this message to, you know, the, what were perceived by Jews as like the dirty, the unclean, the, the gross, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the irreligious people, the ones who were just the outcasts. Isn't that the heart of Jesus? Paul says, we're going to them. Yeah, we're going to go to the outcasts now. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And check this out, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, <laughs> they were like, what? <laughs> they felt validated. They felt like this is crazy, that the blessing of God has always been on the, you know, the Jewish people, the chosen people, and that this messenger, this prophet of God is saying, you know what? We're, we're giving the Jewish people here over to their own ways, and we're going to now serve and bring this message to the Gentiles. So when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And so they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. Again, there's that mess. Like the word of God is spreading. The word of God is taking off wonderfully. And yet there's this hot persecution happening against God's people that, that they were driven out. These messengers of good news just wanting only one thing, to reconcile people to God, and they were driven out. But I love the last verse says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with all this? This mess and this beauty, uh, these disturbances of the Holy Spirit, we welcome them. We welcome them because... At the end of the day, it's worth it. The cost of being a church, being a believer that is filled with the Holy Spirit, the cost is absolutely worth it. Because we know what the end is going to look like, right? We know, we know that all the dead in Revelation 20 are going to stand before God one day. Everyone. Now, it's not God's will for any to perish, but some will perish on that great day of judgment. 
And so now while we're here, we have breath in our lungs and we are surrounded by thousands of people who also have breath in their lungs. This is the time. This is the open window for us to labor, right? For us to pray and go and do dangerous things or do whatever we have to do. This is the mission of the church, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, get the assignments from the Lord and do what he tells us to do. And for some of you, that might mean like going to the ends of the earth. For some of you, that might mean just like emptying savings, uh, selling your house and going to a place that is flat out dangerous. Where even like your Christian friends who are pretty devoted to Jesus will say, no, you're, that's, you shouldn't do, that's crazy. You could get killed. Do you remember when the, the prophet Agabus gave this big demonstration and, you know, said, Paul, you're going to, when you go to cities, you're going to be bound and it's going to be dangerous and everything. And Paul was like, yeah, so what? That's my paraphrase. But he says, so I, I already know that. You think I don't know that? I don't count my life worth anything. I'm not, it's not dear to me. Whether I die or whether I live does not matter. Because if I die, it's good. It's good because I'm going to see Christ. I'm going to be in paradise. And if I don't die, then I'm here. I just keep laboring away and preaching the gospel. But my point, listen, is whether it's beautiful, whether it's exciting and thrilling, or whether it's messy, whether we have to deal with opposition or persecution, whether we lose our jobs or lose our friends or get whatever, killed, get thrown in prison, At the end of the day, it's worth the cost because we are doing the work of God, reconciling people to God. See, we're not living for this world, right? It's not about this world, the comforts of this world. Let me fulfill my little dreams in this world and, you know, get all the things that I want in this world. No, this world means nothing to us. It's all moving toward eternity. We're going to stand before God. And don't you want to be told by the Lord, well done. Good and faithful servant. You served me. You did the will of the Father. You did my work. I want that. And I want to take as many people with me as possible. I don't want, just like the Lord says, It's not his will. It's not his desire for any to perish. You know, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, right? Saying, oh, I just, you know, I want you to to come. We should have this heart. Like, we don't want anybody to be lost. We want all to to be in the arms of God and to, to know Christ and to be ready for that day of eternal judgment. So let the mess come. Have good expectations of revival. Yeah, it will be beautiful. And when God moves in power, it will be wonderful and the kingdom of God will expand. But we have to be ready because there will be persecution, fiery persecution when God begins to move. And if we're like, oh, I don't know. I didn't realize this was going to happen. I don't like conflict. I don't want all these things to happen. Maybe we should just, you know, like kind of, shrink back and just kind of be normal. Let's not shake things up. Listen, this is the kingdom of God. 
Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. There will be division. He said, even within your own families, there will be division. You know, a father will be against his son and a son against his father. This is what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't bring just fluffiness and and flowers and everything sweetness. The gospel, in its potency, disrupts things. Makes me think of my pastor in in New York City, uh, David Wilkerson, who said he, he preached this sermon that was entitled... God needs more troublemakers in the church. (laughs) How many want to be a troublemaker for God? Good. We got one. Can I see two? We got two. All right. All right. Let's have the the musician come back wherever he is. Chris. Is he backstage? Chris Lasson. Please report to the front stage area. Christopher Lasson. He may be in the bathroom. Okay. Um, all right. Well, we're going to worship the Lord for a while, and maybe I'll just knock off one of the... Uh, All right, you're good. Yeah, come on up. <laughs> come on. <laughs> let's stand together, and let's, let's go there. Let's worship the Lord. Let's ask God to give us a fresh touch of his power and to use us. Let's listen to the voice of God for his assignments. Lord, we're open. We say in unison, here we are. Send us. Tell us what to do. We're, we're your servants. We don't want to just be doing our own thing or do what we want to do. It's not about us. We... You know, we, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for you. Yes, Lord. Uh, for, because you died for us, gave your life for us. We want to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Yeah, let's worship.